Well, good evening. How is everyone tonight? Yeah, that was really calm. I will do my best to keep us all awake. Hey, happy, happy Thanksgiving Eve. And uh, I get the privilege of sidetracking us. On a normal Wednesday night, we've been going through Isaiah, and uh, they said, hey, why don't you do something a little bit special, Thanksgiving Eve service? And I went, sweet. What am I going to do? I mean, I like exegetical teaching, you know, going through verse, and, 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 and that way you don't miss anything. And I got to thinking, it's like, okay, what should we talk about? And a friend of mine texted me today and goes, hey, what are you teaching on? My response was, Jesus. She's like, I know that. Expand. And so I will. Today's, today's lesson is titled, Come to the Table. Come to the Table. And we're actually going to be spending a lot of our time in the Old Testament 2 Samuel chapter 9, to be specific. But if you've ever heard me teach, you know that's not where I start. I actually want to start in Luke chapter 19. You see, in Luke chapter 19, Jesus is on his way. The triumphal entry. But this doesn't happen at the triumphal entry, it happens just before as he's making his way through a town called Jericho. And so in Luke chapter 19, we're going to start in verse 1. Jesus, he entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. And he was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So Zacchaeus hurried down and received him joyfully. And take note in verse 7. And when they saw it, they grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a, house, of a man who was a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything... I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. Verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Now, that is its own Bible study. But I don't have time. But what I do want to establish 
is this. The Messiah, the King, the great I am, looked at a sinner and said, come to my table. Come to my table. My friends, how often have we forgotten that he has looked at you and I and said, come to my table. You see, Jesus said, I have come to seek and save the lost. It's really easy for us to to get distracted with the little nuances, get distracted with the building of the church, get distracted with the people we hang out in the church. My friends, that's not what the church is for. The church is to build a bigger table. to be disciples, to go and make disciples of all nations, to seek and save the lost. And as you're going to turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 9, I want to lay some background. I want to lay what's going on. So in Luke... Jesus is on his way to Golgotha. He is on his way to pour out his love, grace, mercy, and justice to pay for the sins that you and I could not pay for. And you see, this story in 2 Samuel chapter 9 is a reflection of that. It's a tangible story that you and I can take and go, holy smokes. Lord, give me your heart. Give me your encouragement. Give me your zeal. You see, what's happened so far is King David has been a king about 12 years. And um, he is at the height of his influence. He's firmly established. He has his new capital. He has his new palace. And he has basically consolidated this whole kingdom. And no one's trying to kill him at the moment, which is pretty rare in David's life. It's subdued the enemies. I mean, there's somewhat of a peace. In fact, the writer of 2 Samuel said this, David reigned over all Israel, doing what was just and right for all of his people. And so it was during this time of peace and quiet that David got to reflect, that David got to look at his life And my friends, this is a side note, but we all should take time to reflect on our life. 
Because what happens here is David reflects on his life, reflects on the challenges, the blessings, reflects on his promises that he's made, and he remembers a promise from his good friend Jonathan, who we know King Saul and his son Jonathan were defeated and was killed. And then David took the throne. And so it was the fulfillment of this promise in 2 Samuel chapter 9 that we are going to look at tonight. So here's the plan. I'm going to attempt to read all of chapter 9 without adding my two cents in yet. And then we're going to go back and we're going to unpack it. Sound good? And David said, verse 1 of chapter 9 of 2 Samuel, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. And the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Makar, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Makar, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar, and Mepheb. Esheth, that's a good word for you, son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? And then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to, sh um, to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like, the, like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both of his feet. All right. Where do we go 
How do we impact this? How, how has this come to the table? Okay, I get Zacchaeus, I get the king, I get the Messiah saying, hey, I'm bigger than all of this. I'm forgiving your sins. I've come to seek and save the lost. Now we have David remembering a promise that he made to Jonathan. Remember, Jonathan was his best friend. Jonathan was his best friend. And Jonathan knew that in in Eastern dynasties, when a new king took over, the old dynasty was eliminated. They were either enslaved, killed, they, they just, they were removed so there wouldn't be a revolt. And so Jonathan says in 1 Samuel chapter 20, you don't need to turn there, but Jonathan basically says, I know you're going to be king, David. I know you're going to be ruler. When that happens, show my family grace. Unlike the norm, show my family grace. And so that's where we get in chapter 9, verse 1. You see, David says, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I might show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, the term kindness, we in the English language have kind of watered that down a lot. You see, we kind of think, oh, kindness is tender and loving and and, and this sweet, soft emotion. But you see, David, actually, that term kindness is, is also known as hesed. And it's usually between God and humans. And what it is, is hesed is a commitment that goes just beyond how you feel. It goes beyond that. Because if we were to base our life just on feelings, (laughs) where would we be right now? Exactly. And so there's this hesed. There's this commitment It's to extend grace when it's undeserved, unearned, and unrepayable. And so David goes, is there anybody I can show Hesed to? Oh, wow. I mean, that's so much more powerful than, hey, uh, Where's a family member I can show kindness to? Because when we think kindness, we almost think, quote, unquote, charity, you know, kind of like, oh, I'm sorry, you know, I I took over your father's throne. But that's, that's not it at all. That's not it at all. It's I'm remembering the promise. Guys, do you see how easy it is to unpack this? He's remembering the promise. Do you remember... Back in Genesis, when we were going in through Sundays, the covenant that God made with Abraham? Oh, the Davidic covenant? Oh, that's, that's what we're talking about here. This depth, this love, this grace. And it's really easy for us to to read this through our English standard version and miss 
what it means by kindness. No, no, no. It's chesed. Undeserved, unearned, and unrepayable. And so Jonathan had made David say, hey, remember me. Remember me. And so David didn't hesitate, and he agreed. And so he went and he searched. Are you Ziba? And Ziba says, I am. In verse 3, is there someone of the house of Saul that I may show kindness to? And Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan, and he is crippled in his feet. Now, we don't have time to turn there, but we hear the story of how uh, Mephibosheth actually became crippled, and that's in 2 Samuel chapter 4. We're told that he's about five years old. It's when his dad, Jonathan, Saul, was killed in Jezreel in the battle against the Philistines. And their heads were cut off. Their bodies were fastened to the wall. The Philistines took their heads throughout the, the town saying, we have won the war. And now Saul's family went, oh, well, you know, we have lost. The first thing that they're going to do is come and pillage and rape and take the castle. And so they literally grabbed everything and ran. And so when news hit Saul's palace that they had lost, a nurse had picked up this five-year-old boy, Mephibosheth, and started running for their life. And as they were running, something happened. Mephibosheth fell, and he was crippled for, for the rest of his life. And so he has lived in hiding his entire life. He's lived in hiding his entire life. At a place, verse 4, lo debar. Lo in Hebrew means no. Debar, root word, means pasture. No pasture. That doesn't sound like a really fruitful place, does it? Devastation. Devastation. Verse 5, I almost wish I could be there. King David sent and brought forth from him the house of Makar, the son of Emil, to Lebedar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David. Can you imagine that knock? Can you imagine that, that understanding, that, that reality, that, I mean, I don't know if they're living in a cave. We don't know if it's this hut. We don't know what's happening. But suddenly, oh, that's the king's men. I, he must have thought, it's it. I'm done. He's found me out. He's wiping me out. This is culture. This is norm. Instead, they say, you're coming with me. What? The king wants to see you. You're coming with me. You don't argue with that when you're a crippled man hiding for your life. 
And so he went. Verse 6, he fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth answered, behold, I'm your servant. And listen to this. I love this. Do not fear. I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. You guys have to understand, I will restore all the land. That land meant life. That's how they grew their crops. That's how they made their money. It was life. And here, he was living in a place called no pasture, desolation, and he just got told, you're getting an inheritance. And on top of that, you're going to eat at my table with my sons. I am adopting you. Holy smokes. That reality, that, 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 that frustration, that, oh man. And, and he answers how I believe I would answer. Truly. Wait, you got the wrong dude. Look at verse 8. He paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? What? I am a nobody. I have nothing to offer. I, I can't give you anything. And David says, make it so. Make it so. And in verses 9 through 13, we see that David puts this plan into motion. He brings an enemy into his own home and makes him his son, adopts him. Well, my friends, how easy it is for us to lose sight of how big our God is. You see, if we break this down, we get this amazing story, and I love this story, that shows David ultimately giving unconditional love and grace to his enemy. It shows David completely redeeming and restoring a wayward son. And it shows David offering a spot at the table. And I want to unpack this a little bit. You see, even though the story chronicles David and Mephibosheth, 
It actually chronicles the greater son of David, Christ, and how Christ dealt and actually incorporates you and I into his family. You see, this story about a crippled boy, man, is our story. We don't deserve to be at the table. We're God's enemies. And yet, we see God's unconditional love and grace. If you're a note taker, that's the first point. Look at this unconditional love and grace. We don't have time to turn there, but you can jot down Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 10. You see, despite Mephibosheth's being from the house of Saul, David's enemy, I mean, I wish I had time to go look at how many times Saul tried to kill David. All right? This wasn't just, even though David and Jonathan were best friends, man, talk about an awkward Thanksgiving blunt. I mean, can you imagine? Hey, best friend, your dad's still trying to kill me? Yep, okay, I'll, uh, I won't stay for dessert. Okay, I mean, I, I, how did they do it? I don't know. But <clears throat> despite him being David's enemy, David showed him unconditional love and grace through his kindness, through the hesed that we talked about. And my friends, this mirrors God's love for us. Despite our sin, our shortcomings, he shows us unconditional love and grace. You see, Ephesians, like I said, chapter 1, verses 3 through 10, in 1, 7, it says this, in him, meaning Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. So through the work of the cross, through Christ's shed blood, we who have been held captive by sin, we who were once Christ's enemies, have been freed. We've been forgiven, and Christ's sacrifice lavishes his love on us. Christ's sacrifice shows us unconditional love and grace. The second thing that this story reveals is the complete redemption and restoration. You see, David took this broke, handicapped man from a hiding place where there was no pasture land, and he brought him to himself, to the courtroom of the king. My friends, the same is true for you and me. You see, David's greater son, Jesus, has taken us from where we were and brought us to where he is, a place of fellowship with him. He has completely redeemed and restored us. And again, I want to encourage you guys to go to the cross 
of Christ. The cross of Christ, where God's love, grace, mercy, and justice met in perfect time. And he redeems us. He shows us his forgiveness. And he restores us. You guys can jot down Romans chapter 5, specifically verse 8. 1 John chapter 4, verses 10 and 19. Those are some great passages to go back and reflect on as you contemplate the unconditional love and grace, the complete redemption and restoration, and then finally, the ultimate promise of eternal inheritance. You see, what, what we saw was David going to Mephibosheth saying, I'm grafting you back into the royal family. I'm grafting you into a place at my table where you will be one of mine. You see, in Galatians chapter 4, Paul puts it this way. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, that we might receive the full rights of being called his son. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave. Mephibosheth no longer hid. He sat at the king's table. But you are no longer a slave, it says in Galatians, but a son. And since you are a son, God has also made you heir. And so God gives us a new identity and a new destiny through his son. And my friends, if you're a believer, this is amazing news. Because God through Christ has chosen you, justified you, adopted you, and has incorporated you into his family simply because Unconditional grace. Nothing that you have said or done, but it's everything that he did at the cross. If you're a Christian, I hope that you see and sense and savor the Lord's love and grace given to you. He's chosen you, rescued you, redeemed you, and have adopted you into his family. You now are heir to the Most High King. Romans 5 said that we were his enemies. We were Mephibosheth, hiding, hoping that the king would just pass us by 
Now, if you're not a Christian, if you haven't given your life to the Lord, I want to spend a little bit of time here. In John, it says, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You see, you don't have to earn his love. You don't have to clean up before you come to the table. You don't have to prop yourself up. You don't have to dust yourself off. You simply need to receive the king's love and grace. And sometimes we as Christians need to be reminded of that because it's really easy for us to make sure that everything is perfect. And guys, I I don't want you to think that I'm asking you to abuse grace because that's not it at all. But go back to the table. Go back and really understand Christ's grace. His unconditional love. And I don't know where you're at personally right now. But my friends, if there is weight on your shoulders, if there is sin in your life, if you are doing your best to hide from Christ, I'm going to ask you to get real. We have a loving God who became his creation to redeem us, restore us, show us love, to invite us to his table. How humbling is that? And so as we're thinking about Thanksgiving and all that we have to do for tomorrow, I hope and I pray that in the next few minutes we'll be able to stop and really contemplate, really think, really wrestle with where we're at with God. Can I say that? Absolutely I can. Because like David invited Meshibbethet, Christ has invited you to come to the table. And my friends, that is what we are going to do tonight. We are going to come to the table. You see, I started it this way. One day Christ went into Jericho, and he ate at the house of a man named Zacchaeus, the wee little man in the tree. And you know what his response from, uh, what, what the response from others were? I can't believe he went to Zacchaeus' house. Doesn't he know who Zacchaeus is? If he was really the Messiah, he'd be hanging around with people that have their lives organized. I mean, that, that's what they were saying. That's what they were doing. That was their attitude. Going, I can't believe he's hanging out with them. And that's why I wanted to start with Luke going, guys, if we are to come to the table, we have to understand that that table is going to be full of broken people because Christ has come to seek and save the lost. Oh, thank you, Lord. Because you know what? It says in Romans 
verse, chapter 5 of verse 10. For if while we were enemies, Christ reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more now that we're reconciled shall we be saved by his life? You see, Christ has said, come to the table. He's asked us to get real with him. And my friends, we're going to take communion now. And as we do, as, as it's passed around, please make sure that you grab both, both cups. You got two cups that are stacked on top of each other. The bread, and, the bread and the cup. And so grab them both, and I'm going to pray, and we're going to partake. But I want you guys to be thinking about this. As, as, as it's passing around, and go ahead, you can start passing it around. Yeah, I'll grab one. Thank you. As it's being passed around, I want you guys to really wrestle with grace. You see, the bread and the cup, the Lord's table, communion, the perfect body that was broken, the life that was broken, the blood that was spilled. It was done because you and I were hiding under a rock. You and I were enemies. We were running from God, not to God. And as we quickly looked at David and Mephibosheth, we see his unconditional love and grace. We see David restore a broken man, and we see him adopt that broken man into a family and be made whole. My friends, communion is just a taste of the Lord's table. It's remembering that he lived the life that we could not live. He paid the price that we could not pay. The song Amazing Grace, I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. My friends, as we get ready to celebrate Thanksgiving, I ask you to examine your hearts tonight, to reflect where you're at at the Lord's table to confess that we all are Mephibosheth, broken, crippled, and in hiding. And yet only by the grace of God we can call him brother. And so, Father, as we hold the bread and the cup in our hands, we do, we remember that amazing gift, that sacrifice, that love 
that was poured out. And Father, I pray for every single one of us here that we would never lose sight of the gift you gave us. That we truly, as, as we remember, as we take the bread and the cup and we remember the grace and the mercy, the redemption, the restoration, and the future promise for all eternity. We realize that it's nothing we say and do. It's all about you. It's because of your son. And we humbly, humbly take communion and remember your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord, I pray for us tonight. I pray for us as a church, as a state, as a nation, as a world. There's a lot of groanings that are going on right now. A lot of heartaches, a lot of fear, a lot of angst. But as, as we come to your table and we reflect on your grace and on your mercy, as we reflect on your love of your gift, I pray that we would be in step with your spirit. That as we examine our hearts, our hearts would be open just like yours was for the lost. Father, I pray that you put people in our lives that you want us to share the gospel with. And Father, I pray that we would be empowered, that we would be encouraged, that no matter what we're going through, we'd be able to point to you. Thank you. Thank you for the cup. Thank you for the bread. Thank you for the remembrance of the best table ever. Your grace your mercy. Father, I pray that we would be people after your heart. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. You have an amazing Thanksgiving. You guys can stay around. I know that the coffee and everything is going to be uh, uh, up and running. And I know that uh, some of the high schoolers have volunteered to help put up uh, tables for men's prayer breakfast. And if you want to help doing that, you're more than welcome to. But um, I encourage each and every one of you guys this next couple days to reflect what it means to come to the table. Amen? God bless you guys.